Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to another episode of Why Would You Tell Me That? I'm the host, Neil Delamere. I'm joined by another host, that's how this thing works, Dave Moore. How are you, Dave? Good. Two hosts is what two, we have. Two, two hosts. Uh, and if you haven't caught the show so far, basically one of us tells the other one some very interesting facts, something interesting about the world, and then gets a, a genuine expert to back up our nonsense in part two. Yeah. And the thing is as well, you see, that the other person is as in the dark as you are right now, listening. Absolutely. Because... I know what's coming up. Neil does not know what's coming up. If you listen to the last episode, you'll know I used the words volcano and Frankenstein. And that's all you need to know. This is the big one. This, to me, is the perfect why would you tell me that episode. You went so far off air as if to suggest um, that this is the reason that we Mm. do this show in this format. You were so excited to tell me about this particular one. Before you do, I have to say a couple of things. If you want us to cover something, get in touch on Instagram. We are at Why Would You Tell Me That? We're also on Twitter as well. And uh, Dave, you're at on Instagram. At Dave Today FM is where you'll find me. I'm at Neil Delamere Comedy. You can get in touch with us on various platforms. We are also proudly part of the Acast Creator Network. Now, consider my appetite whetted, Dave. <laughs> what have you got for me? We're going to talk about the eruption of Mount Tambora. <laughs> that, yeah. That sounds like a stripper's name. I'll be perfectly <laughs> honest with you. Um, I, I don't know anything about the eruption of Mount Tambora. Okay, well, here's the thing. This eruption, obviously, eruption would lead you to probably understand it's a volcano. But this eruption will lead us to talk about things like why there was a famine in Ireland, why the opium epidemic happened in China, why we got what's called the year with no summer, and why we got Frankenstein. It's all because of Tambora. Of one thing. Yeah. Look, this is honestly one of the most interesting things I've ever heard in my life. So I'm very excited that I'm not going to be telling you about it. I think we're all very excited that you're not going to be telling us about it. All right. One of the most qualified humans I think we've ever had on the podcast and may ever have on the podcast is somebody called Gillen Darcy Wood, who is the Professor of Environmental Humanities in the University of Illinois, an Associate Director of the Institute for Sustainability, Energy and the Environment, and the Director of the Undergraduate Certificate in Environmental Writing, as well as the author of a definitive book on Mount Tambora. So, oh my God, is the guy we have in part two the most qualified person around? Okay, you've brought the A-game. I look forward to yeah. this. I mean, that, he's going to cover a lot of ground there. He so is. It, that's, this, that's very impressive. This could be a long one, but we'll see how we go. But yeah, look, look. honestly, I, I, I think it is genuinely one of the most interesting natural events that I've ever heard of because, because it's within a couple of hundred years of now. You know, it's, it's not as though it's something that I'm telling you. For example, about Vesuvius, 79 AD. We'll talk about that in a second. Like, that just seems so far away. And then the ones before that are you know, hundreds of thousands and millions of years ago. But this is relatively recent. We've got records. We've got newspapers. There's so many ways to actually understand how this affected us as humans. And it is fascinating. But I think in order to understand this conversation, we need to understand a couple of points. And number one on this, I think, is something called the VEI, which is the Volcanic Explosivity Index. Right. It's how annoyed Alex Ferguson gets... (laughs) 
depending on how well you played the first half. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, it's you know what? It's like the Richter scale. I don't know if you know how the Richter scale works, but a four on the Richter scale, like a five isn't one more. It's, it's, it's multiples more, right? I do know one thing. We don't use the Richter scale anymore because mm. I did a... Uh, I did a documentary about earthquakes. We use the MMS, I think, and one is a magnitude of the other, isn't it? It's 10 times it. Exactly. And that, so it's a similar thing, is it? Yeah, I think that's why they, they changed from the Richter scale. So the Richter scale was 31 times as many, which, let's face it, is a little bit imperial and not very metric. So they <laughs> yeah. moved to the metric version. So yeah, so the VEI is done exactly like that. So if I tell you about a volcanic eruption that was a four, well, then a five is 10 times as much as that. So it's very important to remember that when we're talking about this, because these numbers will be quite, you know, they'll seem quite, you know, small, oh, God, if, a, you know, if it was a six, but like a six is 10 times bigger than a five. So that's important. And to put things in perspective, probably the most famous volcano eruption of all time, I, I think anyway, is Vesuvius. If I asked, you know, people on the spot to name a, a volcanic eruption. Yeah, they, they go Pompeii, yeah. Yeah, pa- exactly. And, can and I just, then go Vesuvius. Yeah, and Pompeii, to be fair, whoever the PR guy was for ancient Pompeii, he deserves whatever rays he ever gets because there was another city completely blanketed in ash and destroyed called Stabiae. Have you ever heard of that? I have never heard of Stabiae. No, I've heard no. of... Herculeum and Pompeii. I've been there, but no, where's Stabium? Yeah. So Stabiae was a, a Stabiae, city sorry. like near Pompeii that was suffered pretty much the same fate. But yet all we hear about is Pompeii and Vesuvius. So that Vesuvius eruption, again, as I said, probably the most famous of all eruptions to, to most normal humans like ourselves. That was a five. Okay. Right. So that's a big, big eruption. As we know, I mean, obviously, we're dealing with, you know, archaeological finds to try and determine how many people may have perished in, in that kind of eruption. But it, it's thought that it's at least a thousand people. Um, obviously, you know, I don't know how populated those two cities were, Pompeii and Stabiae, but about a thousand people is what kind of archaeologists have hazard to guess. It's around that number. Another one, which again, I think people know the name, but maybe don't know much about it, but Krakatoa. Yeah, that's just after that, the event of the lava lamp, yeah. <laughs> 1883. That's not true. No, no, no. <laughs> Sometimes it's hard to know because Neil is an authority <laughs> on a lot of things. But that definitely isn't the case. That was, by the way, in 1883. This is so, so mind-blowing, right? 13,000 times more powerful than the atomic bomb. That's 13,000 times more than uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, than those bombs. No way. Yeah, when it erupted, it erupted in Indonesia and the explosion was heard in East Africa. What did they think it was? Exactly. So those kids throwing those bangers again. <laughs> <laughs> they're illegal. Where do they even get them? They've been to Newry. <laughs> they're all like, they're, they're, they're by fireworks. It's September, for Christ's sake. Every year it gets earlier and earlier. It, you, don't, you don't think it could be a volcano in Indonesia? That's utterly ridiculous. We're in East Africa at this point. It's far more likely to be some sort of incendiary Catherine wheel or a Roman country. <laughs> wow. it, would, it would be ludicrous to think that, but that is the force of a six. And that is what Krakatoa was. It was a six. So Vesuvius was five, Krakatoa six. When we get onto Tambora, Tambora Ooh. is most definitely a seven. And some people say, and I'll be interested to find out what Gillen thinks, some people say it might even have been an eight. So, Ooh. like, if, okay, so in my terrible maths, I'm just going to throw it out there. If a six is 13,000 times more powerful than the atomic bomb was, then a seven should theoretically be 130,000 times more powerful because it's 10 times more, like, who yeah. knows? But we'll ask the expert on that. But that, look, if an eight happened anywhere, we're all gone, And Anywhere on planet Earth, Pretty much. An eight and, is like, forget. And can we say, when you say this, some people think it's a seven, well, it's guaranteed a seven, but some people think it's an eight. And um, that is based on scientific measurements. It's not the same as a nightclub. There's no, there's no volcano, there's no volcano goggles, are there? There's no. Oh, I thought it was a seven, but then after six Carlsbergs, she really looked like an eight. No, sure, surely it would be Sambuca, because that's what you'd set on fire. <laughs> surely that's what of course, it would be. Of course it would be. Oh my um, God, so this is a seven. I, I can't 
can't believe I've never heard of this. I know. And it was such an impactful event in human history. Nor could I, to be honest. Um, one, I suppose, the, the most recent one that we all remember was the Icelandic volcano, which we all like yeah. to call the Icelandic volcano because pretty much nobody can say, hey, yeah, fjetla jökull, which, of course, I can say because I am a linguistic nerd. What is it? Do you give it to me again. Hey, yeah, fjetla jökull. Okay, can you do it uh, as Bjork? Hey, you like I need to send an immediate tweet of apology to Bjork. Bjork, Bjork, I'm so sorry. That was terrible. I don't know what you sound like, but you don't sound like, like that. I thought you were well within your rights to just refuse that. But <laughs> you are really a linguistic nerd because you went, I can do this. A I part can, of your brain went, I can do this. I I'm going to nail this. And also, he's not going to know anyway. So <laughs> That's true. Um, but interestingly, that volcano, while it obviously downed air travel around most of Europe, in fact, around a lot of parts of the world. And um, it resulted in, in, in zero debt. You know, it, thankfully, it was 2010. Uh, it was remote enough. Uh, it, it, didn't, it certainly wasn't a five or a six or a seven. For, like, you know, by comparison, Krakatoa, which we talked about there as a six, 36,000 people died. And that's, you know, that's without knowing what else happened as a as a kind of a fallout so 36,000 mm. you know dead very quickly so a, an eruption like that can be pretty devastating but you know hey yeah fiat lacital uh, wasn't quite that so and, and interestingly as well i didn't know this undersea volcanoes account for 75% of volcanic activity on earth you're beginning to freak me out now i mean i'm i like <laughs> There's stuff going on that I don't even know about. Like, presumably, this is just bubbling away all the time. Yeah. And maybe you know, I'd like to ask our expert, are we any better at knowing if and when these events are going to happen? Mm. Well, there is a story around Mount Tambora, which, again, I'll let Gil and tell you, but there, there are stories of the earth making noises and puffs of smoke and things that we now know are kind of pre-dinner seismic yeah pre-dinner belches before the explosion happened <laughs> but i suppose you know back in the 1800s and before that that wasn't widely known and people just thought oh it's some weird thing with the land sure what are we worried about we've lived here all our lives kind of thing um yeah. but then obviously unfortunately you know things happened that uh, that then resulted in lots and lots of deaths and um, but yeah the undersea stuff is fascinating i know i've seen um on some of those nature programs before and there are vents in the very deep trenches of, of the ocean where you know, it would be almost impossible for anything to live. But things can live there because of the heat and the sulfur that's being emitted by these vents, these tubes coming out of the earth at that really deep level. There are microscopic things and these very strange fish things that can live off the sulfur. And because of the heat, they can exist down there. It's crazy. I've seen a geezer. Mm. Uh, I've seen a geezer. I have been to Iceland and I've seen a geezer erupt. And uh, I used to say that nothing makes you feel more inadequate as a man than watching a geezer <laughs> erupt. And then your girlfriend at the time going, Anna can do it again in 10 minutes as well. <laughs> I don't think you should be comparing yourself to <laughs> geological phenomena, if I'm honest. It's bad enough yeah, standing beside someone in your urinal. You're comparing <laughs> yourself to the power of a massive planet. <laughs> What, you mean you don't call yours old faithful as well, do you not? <laughs> um, another quick thing I learned as I was kind of doing a bit of research on this is the volcanoes in space. Like, so... Oh, God. Yeah. Like, just, just volcanoes in space is the name of some sort of movie franchise that we haven't seen yet but we should watch volcanoes in space pigs in space volcanoes in space Uh, these are going to be massive these are going to be the size of planets or something yeah they're terrifying stuff like for example the biggest one in our solar system and don't forget you know we've explored very little of space even with the probes and telescopes we know very little but what we do know is you know a fair bit about our solar system uh people have probably heard of olympus mons which is a very famous volcano it's on mars it is the biggest volcano in our solar system but what I love about this is is its dimensions, right? So, look, it's very tall. It's 26 kilometers tall, which is three times the height of Mount Everest. Okay, that's right? pretty tall. That is tall. However, that's nothing compared to how wide Olympus Mons is. It's France. <laughs> it's France. It's, it's 26 kilometers tall. tall and it's, and and it's, it's France, France wide, which is 600 kilometers. But it's France wide. And it's one volcano. It's like a volcanic Danny DeVito. It's, <laughs> it, in his early days, it's it's wider than it is it's, tall. The analogy I didn't know I needed, but that is exactly it. 600 kilometers wide, 20-something times wider 
than it is tall. And here's the thing, right? That's one, Olympus Mons is one of four volcanoes that all sit together. Like there's three other giant ones, not as big as Olympus Mons. But they're so big and so heavy that they actually shifted the surface of Mars about three billion years ago. It moved that whole tectonic plate 20 degrees from the poles down towards the equator. Just those those volcanoes. It's like when you see a guy with old school kind of brain surgery and the stitches in a film. <laughs> the, the, the plate, the Literally, fracture plate has, has slid down his head because it's so heavy. It's gone from the top of his head down towards his ear by 20 degrees. I think Matt Damon needs to go back. <laughs> I mean, you saw very well him sciencing the shit out of the planet to get off. It was a very good film and all the rest. <laughs> but I mean... There's clearly bits that he he needs to talk about yeah, a bit more. He needs to go and explore more. And then there are cryo volcanoes, which just sound like if you want to make the volcanoes in space movie, then okay, in movie two is volcanoes in space cryo volcanoes. I'm going to guess a cryo is freezing. You got it. So on Saturn, cryotherapy. Yeah, on Saturn's moon Enceladus, there are volcanoes on the surface that we can see. Now, Enceladus is small. It's it's a small moon, right? When Enceladus, you, s- you buy them from a chuck and a Mexican <laughs> man. Yeah, can, I, can I have a chicken Enceladus, please? No. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's a very small moon, but visible when you look through a telescope are these raised white, because it's absolutely freezing, frozen mountains, and they spray out jets of water vapor, ice, a mix of who knows what gases out into space from the surface of this moon. It's a volcano, but it's freezing. It's Oh, oh so that's the Saturn moon. That's yes, the yes, one that's yes. not case. The quesadillas is the other moon, isn't it? And, and burrito is the other moon. So it's, it, it, this thing is like Bellagio Fountain. It's, it's, fire, it's not firing out magma. It's firing out water. Yeah, absolutely. Water vapor, ice. Like, uh, you know, obviously the whole entire thing would be an uninhabitable giant nightmare but like Both. if you were there Both. that's what you would see if you were there as a as a volcano tourist and you had your nick on or your canon camera and you stood on the surface of enceladus with a burrito in one hand and the camera in the <laughs> other you would yeah. see volcanoes of white ice i bet elton john's had that at a party <laughs> i bet that has been the centerpiece during his full-on t- tiaras and tantrums <laughs> Uh, rocket man stuff. I bet he's had that. There's been there's been an ice sculpture of a swan, and then there's been <laughs> an ice volcano beside it. There's been a full ice volcano. He demanded it. Yeah, and then for some inexplicable reason, a Mexican food cart right beside that. But nobody <laughs> nobody understands except Elton <laughs> and a mariachi band. <laughs> try my try my ice sculpture. <laughs> um, but here's the thing, right? And I want to ask Ilan about this in part two. I sometimes get this feeling of, um, I don't know, I I really enjoy it, but it's a feeling of absolute and utter irrelevance as as a race. Like the belief that, you know, we are somehow, you know, important as humans and, you know, like we've managed to understand our world and we can explore the galaxy or the solar system. So we're somehow, no. Volcano, eight, boom, gone, dead. Planet survives, planet regenerates. You know, 100,000 years later, there's green, there's trees, there's because we live in this kind of Goldilocks. So I just love these kind of, like, I absolutely firmly believe in the human effect on climate change, but I also believe that the Earth goes through periods of cooling and heating up, and we are irrelevant in the grand scheme of things. We've been here for 50,000, 100,000, whatever you want to say. The Earth's been 13, it's 13 billion years old. Well, the universe is, you know what I mean? Like, I love this feeling of nihilism. Well, I can tell you you're irrele- irrelevant if you want. <laughs> I mean, I'm more than happy to say it, that you're completely unimportant and yeah. trivial in the grand scheme of things. And you. Your entire existence is pointless and it's it's a complete freak of a few small or actually probably massive coincidences and, and, and actually like... Like the opposite of the of it's a wonderful life. If if you were were gone, nobody would miss you. How, how's you know what I feel? That? This is all I ever want from someone. Thank you, Neil. This is why I don't write greeting cards. <laughs> you a very are, specific reason. You are irrelevant. Time is a construct. Good day to you, sir. <laughs> <laughs> Happy birthday, oh, Dad. <laughs> I'm going to leave all of my meetings saying that from now on. You are irrelevant. Time is a construct. Are we even here? Good day to you, sir. And then I'm going to buy a top hat and have a monocle and just 
Stop it. Oh, well, so, sorry. The reason, I was, the reason I was bringing this up was Yellowstone, famously. Yeah. We talked about geysers. Yellowstone is an active volcano in this area in the US. And obviously, were it to erupt, picnic baskets would be destroyed. <laughs> picnic baskets. Um, no, honestly, it would be, it would be so incredibly detrimental to the existence of not only the people in North America, but the entire planet, because it is such a massive, it has the potential to be an eight Yellowstone. So NASA came up with a plan to cool Yellowstone because it's the heating up of Yellowstone that will eventually cause it to erupt. That is the nature of a volcano. And they came up with this plan to say, you know what we can do? We can cool Yellowstone and preserve humanity for another 100,000 years, whatever it is. So their idea was we drill massive holes down into the earth and we fill them with freezing cold water. Well, not freezing cold water, but just above freezing cold water. Uh, and America went, do you know what? That's probably a pretty good idea because it would keep the temperature. Down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How much would this cost? Three and a half billion dollars. Do you know what? We'll just take our chances and we'll head off and build some roads or do whatever it is we do with the three and a half billion now i know for an uh an economy like america three and a half billion dollars isn't a lot but they just decided not to cool yellowstone and do other stuff and maybe we'll all not thank them for that in the future when they decided to move away from nasa's plan it's quite difficult given the short-termism of politics that you can go here can we spend three and a half billion dollars for something that might not happen and if it does happen you'll all be long dead and etc etc Someone goes, yeah, but what about the freeway? And they go, yeah, let's build a freeway. Yeah. Like, it is remarkable. It's, it's like, it's, it's a remarkable testament to what Joe Biden is trying to do now in, t- in terms of the environment. And Dave, um, Dave, I was going to call him Dave, uh, David Attenborough, Sir David Attenborough. Like, uh, like, with the best will in the world, David Attenborough is 94, 95, right? He, yep. He's going to be finished on the earth not, in the not too distant future and yeah, he wants to leave it in good stead for everybody else coming after him uh, instead of tearing the arse out of it like the rest of us would so one it makes me look at him and think that's amazing but two it makes me think he has never driven a hire car there is a man <laughs> who has never just or, gone or, i'm not gonna i'm not gonna need this myself in a while <laughs> or if he did he returned it after he cleaned it yeah, yeah, yeah. He, I just uh, upgraded that, actually. I just uh, put uh, some uh, more expensive uh, diesel into it and uh, put it... Did the That's the way Neil, Neil's understanding of cars is to upgrade a car. I put more expensive diesel in. Is, no, that, I was, is that cool? I was, I was going to build up to it. I was going to say, and I changed the furry dice. And, oh, uh, okay. I put fuel injectors on the, the wing one. I've stuck Dave and guest stickers <laughs> over the windscreen. Dave and everyone who was. And all I know about this general area is uh, the father of seismology and the man who coined the term seismology was an Irish man called Robert Mallet. Okay. And he blew up, I'm trying to remember, it was a dog here, Kalini Beach. He buried gunpowder and he blew it up to, to see the waves. Oh, could you get a flicker on, on, on a scale? Yeah, because right. I got to explode a quarry once in a documentary and do you know those they used his family used to own an iron foundry and the railings around trinity college were made by his family the mallets i did not know that there you go now i mean it's not he's the size of france or anything like that but it's not my episode <laughs> but, but it's certainly worth knowing much... it's not your episode are you feeling why would you tell me that is it is starting to bubble oh, up inside oh, you like an erupting volcano? I am 100% feeling what... I mean, even before this guest, who has more letters after their name than any normal human needs, <laughs> who is going to be good, and the event that is of such, I was going to say seismic proportions, but it is seismic proportions and geopolitical proportions by the sounds of things, even before this person, all that nonsense you've just told me, and I use nonsense in the best possible sense, <laughs> yes, I, am, I am fully on board. The information, unlike you and your existence, is highly relevant. Excellent. I'm glad to hear it. Bring on part two. Okay, well, let's do part two with uh, Gillen Darcy Wood, Professor of Environmental Humanities in the University of Illinois. He'll join us in a few minutes. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems, too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. So, uh, Neil, it's part two, and we are joined now by somebody who has uh, one of the most qualified t- set of titles I've ever read out. Please welcome Gillen Darcy Wood, Professor of Environmental Humanities at the University of Illinois, Associate Director of the Institute for Sustainability, Energy and the Environment, and the Director of the Undergraduate Certificate in Environmental Writing. Gillen, hello. Thanks so much, Dave. Good to be with you. That's all we have time for. Thank you very much. <laughs> Join us on the next episode of Why Would You Tell Me That? Um, so, Gillen, I, I've teased Neil and our audience a little bit about Mount Tambora and the massive implications that Mount Tambora had on everything, everything in the world, effectively, is certainly everything in, in our part of the world here in Western Europe and, of course, where it actually erupted. But can you give us, I suppose, a little idea about what happened around the time of the eruption, when it was, when in history it was, and, and what happened? The eruption occurred in 1815, which if you sort of scour your memory banks in a high school history class and think 1815, well, that has to be the Battle of Waterloo and the end of the Napoleonic Wars. Uh, and the battle actually occurred about six weeks after the, um, after the volcano erupted in Indonesia, or as it was then, the Dutch East Indies, uh, in, in 1815. And the question I often get is, oh, did the did the weather impacts from the eruption uh, affect the outcome of the Battle of Waterloo? Mm. Because I'm not sure how detailed your recollection of the battle is, but um, Napoleon was on the brink of victory until he was stymied by bad weather, uh, which allowed time for the Prussian mercenaries to sweep in. Of course, yeah. And uh, But actually the answer is not to deflate your expectations uh, but no, there was no relationship. <laughs> there is no relationship whatsoever between the weather at Waterloo and the eruption of Mount Tambora, though Tambora did have a cataclysmic impact on global weather in the years following. Uh, that's too short a time frame okay. for uh, the volcanic aerosols to, to impact weather systems over Europe. But, so there's, a, there's an historical coordinate for you the Battle of Waterloo and Mount Tambora. And one of the reasons I wrote the book was to, in a way, rewrite history because, yes, we all think of 1815 and Napoleon and the post-Napoleonic period and the great economic downturn that faced Europe and Britain and Ireland after the war, which has always been attributed to the massive demobilization of Europe's armies and so, you know, so many more mouths to feed and men flooding back to their towns and villages with no work. Uh, and that was certainly sort of part of the 
part of the great problem. But what, what historians have missed because of their environmental and meteorological blind spot, what they've missed is the fact that the, the weather was the worst in a millennium. So you had these terrible floods and cold, cold summer weather from Ireland all the way across through the uh, middle part of Europe. Uh, and that's really what set the stage for the for the you know the humanitarian disaster. Where exactly is Tambora? All right, so perhaps some of your listeners have heard of Bali. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Well, I'm a see. I'm a, originally from Australia, and Bali is a is a chosen locale for Australians to make fools of themselves <laughs> in Southeast Asia. I mean, I suppose where don't they? But Bali is there, about six degrees south of the equator in Indonesia. It's a picturesque. Pacific Island. And uh, so if you think it's just a, uh, you know, 50, 50 miles, 60 miles east of Bali, uh, an island called Sumbawa, that is the location of the volcano. Okay. So think shots of tequila and henna tattoos. And <laughs> roughly, that's where we're talking about. That's where we're talking. It's, um, even, no, on, I was en route to Sumbawa and was in Bali, and the Balinese have never been to Sumbawa. Okay. So it's, it's like two different worlds. So Bali is... Uh, you know, obviously overrun by Australians, Western tourists, and you know, and um, to to the east there, Sumbawa is like uh, uh, an island, really kind of lost in time. Very relative to Bali, extremely underdeveloped. Very few foreign visitors whatsoever. Hmm. And have you ever gone there? Uh, so it takes quite a bit of imagination and, and persistence to actually get to Sumbawa okay. uh, and and travel about. The roads to the volcano are, are awful. Uh, you know, I spent the entire time sort of holding on. I was in this cramped in this SUV, and we we broke down three or four times, barely made it. Wow! Uh, in a sense, I wish we hadn't because it took two days to climb up the bloody volcano, and I was in no fit no state to do that. And picking leeches off my legs the whole time. I don't know why it's not popular with tourists at all. I can't understand it. <laughs> I don't think it's going to be any more popular after Gillen. <laughs> Has sold it to us like this. Well, if you you know, the view is is like is like nothing else. It's like this Martian view, this extraordinary caldera, this crater which is six kilometers across, and a and a kilometer or more deep, with these little sort of pearl blue lakes at the bottom and clouds of sulfur wafting around. It's it's the most incredible sight uh, of my life, uh, and was and was worth the climb. And you can see it from space. I mean, NASA has photos of it. It's so large. It, I mean, it being the largest eruption of at least the last ten or 20,000 years on, on planet Earth, it really made a mark. I did explain to Neil and to everyone else about VEI, the Volcanic Explosivity Index, uh, my little understanding of that earlier on. So um, I've been reading up a little bit and, you know, Vesuvius scoring maybe a five, Krakatoa a six. Do you put Mount Tambora as a seven or as an eight? Oh, it's... um. It's listed as an eight, uh, so the explosivity index is is exponential. So it's it's not linear. It's not that eight is like fifteen percent greater than mm. six. It's like exponentially larger. When I when I would tell friends that I was writing about a you know nineteenth century volcanism, uh, they'd say, oh, you know, Krakatoa, obviously. Tambora was let's think of it this way: six times larger than Krakatoa. Right. We think about, you know, the enormous impact of Krakatoa. Think of a, a volcano six times that the magnitude. And the reason we haven't heard of it, or until now, <laughs> until my book, of course, changed everything. <laughs> of course. Um, it, the reason we haven't heard about it is, well, if you think, what else was, what happened between 1815 and 1883? Yeah. You know, the invention of the telegraph and, and the modern, modern communications. And so when Krakatoa erupted, the news was broadcast worldwide, you know, within hours. Whereas in 1815 was a world of sailing ships. When it explodes, what's the physical process of that? What is emitted into the air? How high does it go? What happens? Oh, yeah. So that's incredibly important. So first of all, the, the, the latitude of the volcano is very important. So the fact that it's near the equator, keep that in mind. So I mean, I suppose our news wires are, are more concerned with very North Atlantic volcanoes, right? Volcanoes in Iceland and what have you. Now, they are situated at high latitudes, which means that they're, no matter how explosive, say, one of these Iceland volcanoes becomes, it will never have a global impact on climate by virtue of the fact of its high latitude. It can't enter into the, um, the global weather system. 
Uh, whereas near the equator, if you have, you know, it's like a perfect storm. If you have a, a large volcanic eruption located near the equator, then it's possible for, for it to have a global impact. And now the other questions that you asked was like, okay, what is it shooting into the atmosphere and how high does it go? Also extremely important. Another question I often get, particularly from Americans, is also oh, is, is it like Mount St. Helens, for instance? Mm. You know, well, what, what was the impact of Mount St. Helens? Now, you gentlemen, you're younger than I am, but so Mount St. Helens was 1980. We're both alive. Yeah. Both alive, but barely, I'm guessing. <laughs> you know, I was a teenager and I remember Mount St. Helens and uh, got a lot of coverage, of course. But um, its impact on climate was zero because it blew the side out of the mountain. Mm. So there are two things. So latitudinal location, but also the, the stratospheric verticality of the of the eruption, you need a what's called a Plinian eruption. That's the classic one where the all the material goes is ejected directly upwards into the atmosphere. Right. So you have this mix of sort of magma, ash, you know, sulfuric gases, all shooting upward. Um, I mean, a volcanologist once explained it to me like a, uh, an eruption the size of Tambora. Think of the entire topsoil of Illinois and Texas. I'm here in Illinois. Yeah. Uh, and so Illinois and Texas, I mean, that's most of Europe. So think of the entire topsoil you know, they're transferred from beneath the ground into the atmosphere all, you know, wow. over the course of several hours, wow. you know, maybe a day, 24 hours. So that's an extraordinary transference of, of planetary matter from one, you know, from a subterranean zone into an atmospheric and stratospheric zone. So it's you know, when you begin to think about it in those, in terms of that level of volume, and then yes, the pressure has to uh, inject the the matter into the atmosphere about you know into the stratosphere. So that's about forty kilometers. So that's how high that would have gone. Yeah, over four, like about forty three kilometers, because otherwise gravity and precipitation, you know, it washes it, most of it out. And even with an eruption of this size, the greater part of the material just falls back to the Earth. Okay, but you know, the crucial thing is that there's a, there's a significant fraction that escapes the atmosphere and sits up in the stratosphere like this blanket, right? It just sits up there where it's dry and quiet and uh, it's above the weather systems of, of, uh, of our planet. It sits above the weather systems and then starts to spread itself out across the globe. So within two weeks, this volcanic cloud from Tambora has circled the equator right? And then you begin to get these incredible sunsets in England and Ireland and elsewhere in the North Atlantic as the, as it starts, they, it begins a slow polewood drift, right? It sounds to me like the island wouldn't have been massively inhabited, but were there instant yeah. deaths and instant mortality? Was that an issue? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. So it has the largest death toll in the historical record, it's about 100,000 people. So, you know, Subaru was, was prosperous and well-populated. So, yes, yeah, so you have tens of thousands of people uh, killed from the blast. And all of Southeast Asia is basically in darkness for about a week. Wow. I mean, darkness for a week. And it's right, it, would, it happened right around, around the uh, rice harvest season. So that rice harvest was destroyed. So you have you know, immediate food crisis, but also... You know, one of the gases, one of the volcanic gases is fluorine, and that ends up in the wells and poisons the wells. So people's drinking water is poisoned. Right. And so you have, so you have the instant, like, destruction of the blast. That's probably, you know, several tens of thousands of people. And then in the days and weeks following, you have the poisoning and the starvation, etc. And so the death toll is in excess of 100,000 people, which is the, the largest of, of any volcano. Uh, volcano that we have on record so a really pitiful cataclysmic scene we're kind of getting a picture now of the scale of the eruption and also the fact that it is now as you said because of its latitude because of the 43 kilometers up into the stratosphere we now understand that this is going to have a profound effect on the climate the global climate am i right in thinking the earth cooled considerably because of tambora yeah yeah so what you have is a there's a kind of wrapping, a volcanic wrapping around the planet, filtering out the sun, right? So it reduces the solar input, right? So everything is going to be 
uh, degrees cooler. Mm. So what were the weather effects of Tambura, both across Europe and also in Asia, that led to that opium boom in China? Oh, okay. So these are the flow-on consequences, right? These are the indirect flow-on consequences of, of a massive weather disruption. The most important primary effect is on agriculture. So, and this is true, wow, in Ireland, Ireland suffered terribly. Um, so the, weather, the, weather, the basic weather systems that, that impact Ireland, you know, the low pressure out in the Atlantic, etc. those pressure systems shifted, right? That low pressure system that's typically further up near Iceland came degrees of latitude further south. And so it generated these large storms that just swept over Ireland through the summertime. I mean, are you, used to, are you used to a lot of summertime storms? No, not particularly. I mean, no. more famously, it, it rains a lot in Ireland. But my, again, yeah. my reading of this is it rains solidly for the eight weeks of high summer in Ireland. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The entire summer was wiped out. The biggest impact on agriculture is always going to be on the growing season. With Tambora, eruption in 1815, limited impact in the summer of 1815. But by 1816, 12, 15 months later, you have the full impacts of the eruption are embedded. And Ireland bears the brunt of the storms that start sweeping in, just one after the other. Yeah. Other parts of the world, for different reasons, it's, uh, it's drought. According to the change in the storm tracks, the common denominator is cold temperatures, yeah. like temperatures at which rice can't grow. Well, let's talk about that because the, the failing of the rice harvest, not just once, but three years running, in China and particularly the Yunnan province. And so I think what Neil is, is trying to get to, which is a fascinating story, is that my understanding, again, Gillen, you're the expert, my understanding is that because of the failing three years in a row, the peasants in the Yunnan province had to make a decision as to, well, what, we can't grow rice. What can we grow to sustain our communities? And they chose opium. Right. So this is the argument that I make in the book. And I think it's, it's pretty persuasive that the farmers there, they were leaseholders, they were better off than serfs. And at a certain point after, yes, the second and third rice crops failed, they were there was starvation, right? It was a, a famine. The farmers were left with this decision. R- grain prices have gone through the roof. Mm. Grain is beyond the reach of the average family. How do you purchase food on the market when the prices are so high? And so the only way is to turn to a, ca- to a cash crop. Mm. And the cash crop that was valuable and was a growth market as a commodity crop was, was opium. So you have this, like, this wholesale transition from rice to opium in Yunnan right at this time, 1816, 1817, 1818. And within a decade or two, 90% of the land is given over to opium production. One of the, the, the wild claims I made in the early part of the podcast to Neil was that the eruption of Mount Tambora gave rise to Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. And I think that this is one of the more tangible pieces of art that we can actually talk about specifically because there's a lot of recording of this, the, the way that the genesis of this book. So can you tell Neil and everyone else how that came to be? It's certainly not a stretch to connect um, to Tambora to the writing of Frankenstein. So think about um, Shelley, uh, Percy Shelley, Mary Shelley. So they've They've run away together. <laughs> They're in Switzerland and they hear that, oh, you know, Lord Byron has taken a villa mm. on the shores of Lake Geneva. Uh, and Mary Shelley's half-sister, Claire Claremont, just happens to be pregnant <laughs> with Lord Byron's um, child. How convenient. So, I mean, how convenient. Yeah, so Claire has really directed their steps towards Switzerland. They, they weren't necessarily going to be there, but Claire had a hand in directing them. Uh, there and so they take a house of course you know next door to byron's villa and uh, i teach this te- you know i teach frankenstein to my students of course who are all 18 19 20 years old which is what which is how old they were i mean mary was 18 wow shelley only a few years older byron in his 20s so they were young uh, university aged and um, so i imagine that you know in their minds they were going to spend a, a gorgeous summer in Switzerland, with picnicking and boating, taking lots of long romantic walks. Mm. But it was the uh, rainiest and coldest uh, summer in the history of Swiss record keeping. 
given that their you know their ordinary sort of summertime enjoyments were were cut off from them, they spent their time indoors, and in order to entertain themselves, they said, "Well, let's have a ghost story competition." Okay, this is the ne- the Netflix of the day. Exactly, exactly. It's like what you, you know what you do when you're just sitting around the fire, uh, and you know they were taking a lot of opium, and um, <laughs> and reading from Coleridge's latest volume of poems and, and working themselves up into sort of semi-hysteria over those. <laughs> you know, you can imagine the kind of level of erotic intensity. So they went away and uh, Byron wrote a little sketch. Percy didn't get very far and Mary came up with uh, the plot of Frankenstein. So I think clearly the winner. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> of the competition, though it must be said in an honourable mention to Byron's doctor and resident punching bag, John Polidori. Right. Tell us about that, yeah. Yeah, John Polidori, who, as I say punching bag because Byron just based, I think hired him basically so that he could mock him and bully him across Europe. He just needed someone to take out his... <laughs> uh, you know his, his daily frustrations on, and that was that was John Polidori, and Polidori, as I suppose, is a kind of revenge. You know, sketched out this story about a uh, you know an insane aristocrat who's had a thirst for blood. Um, you know, thinly disguised Lord Byron, and that's the vampire. Yeah, right. So, as I say to my students, okay, here's your at the end of the semester. Here's your summer homework. Here's your summer project. I want. Two enduring cultural icons. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it can be in sketch story form. That's okay, but I want the equivalent of a vamp- of the vampire and Frankenstein on wow. my desk <laughs> by the end of the summer. <laughs> That's phenomenal. yeah. But now, see, if they listen to this podcast, their argument back to you can be: Well, we would have written it if there was a massive volcanic <laughs> eruption. But now that there isn't, yeah. we had other stuff to do. Students are so annoying with their comebacks. Yeah, and the lack of opium is just shocking. I mean, in fairness, oh, yeah. <laughs> do we get extra credit if we go and chase the dragon? That's what we really want to know. Right, right. Well, um, yeah, see no evil from this professor. Given the terror that you've described for our listeners in, in terms of the effects that all of this had on the global climate, and, and particularly, as you said, once it was at a certain latitude and the potential for that to happen. One of the things I was talking to, uh, to Neil about in part one again was how prepared are we as a civilization for another eight, an eight on the VEI? Because realistically, by the sounds of things, it's not something we can control. I know there was a plan NASA had to to cool Yellowstone that was shelved. But like, I mean, if Yellowstone were to erupt at a level like this, I mean, how would we fare as, as, as a human race? I mean, if there were another Yellowstone-sized event, yeah, um, it would be it would be mercifully quick for all of us, right? Uh, so we're not really <laughs> yeah, we're not really even talking about that. <laughs> I mean, t- Tambora is not on is not on that on that scale. That would be like world ending for us. Right. What are the differences between now and two hundred years ago? You know, we have a population cresting in nine billion. You had a planet of fewer than one billion two hundred years ago. The vast majority of the world's population. It's really a pre-industrial world of uh, subsistence agriculture. So particularly in the developed world, we have a great deal more sort of infrastructural insurance against large-scale calamities of this kind. But the other side of the coin is that systemically we're far more exposed. Yeah. Right. So that if you think about our global supply chain and global agricultural production, that on, on system-wide, we're extremely vulnerable. That's the bottom line. Well, I mean, we don't have to even uh, imagine that. I mean, the, the, the global pandemic has illustrated the, the the desire in humans to have, you know, sliced bread and, and toilet paper, and then a ship gets stuck in the canal, and all of a sudden there's $50 billion <laughs> a day of, of, of trade not being able to move through. So, yeah, we are systemically, yeah. we are hugely open to this. Yes, yeah. but, but if you're going to choose somewhere for this to, to live, if this does happen, you might as well live in a place that produces more food than it consumes dave so i mean you want to keep the beef for yourself neil i want to keep the beef and the spuds and the lovely butter i could do without your plastics and your oil coming through the suez canal if this goes full-on apocalypse which is what is being proposed in your question all right yeah did the world authorities if we can call them that and nation states did they learn anything from Tambora? Because one thing that we've learned from the pandemic, that the countries that seem to have done the best are the countries that have 
meaningfully and well-planned health systems and, uh, you know, are strong in terms of their institutions. Did Europe, where we are, did America, did they learn anything from this? Yeah, well, not quickly enough. But um, if we think about the immediate post-Napoleonic period, the ideology, the laissez-faire ideology in the ruling classes of Europe, the hold of that ideology was total. Mm. And what I mean by laissez-faire, which is the poor just have to look after themselves. Charity was the work of the churches. I mean, if you think about the modern governmental system was only just beginning to emerge, and this is before any concept of the welfare state. That's when the Tambora disaster happens. My argument, and which I back up with historical documents, is that, for instance, in the, uh, in the aftermath of the disaster that happened in Ireland, you get the first public works program right. uh, initiated by, by the, the UK government. It's a public works program. It's like, okay, next time this happens, we'll have a public works program so that we can employ people who would otherwise be on the streets or on, or on the, who would otherwise be environmental refugees. Cause that's what you had across Europe. You had people who were starving on their farms and in their villages just take up, hit the roads and head for the market towns. And then you had conflict and you had the, the burghers of these towns barring the gates to the, to the multitudes. So you had terrible scenes. It's like, how can we avoid these scenes? We need a public works program. Um, and also you get the first committee dedicated to public health. Right. And this is like 1817, 18, 18, 19. So a very clear answer to your question, Neil, is that you get the stirrings of a kind of more liberal, progressive model of government. I mean, it wouldn't do to overstate that. The ideas are being germinated, but I mean, yeah, yeah. from the basic uh, history that I would have done in school, it wasn't necessarily enacted flawlessly, but certainly the idea of it is 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 starting but, around that time. Yeah, it germinates the idea that oh, actually, government has a responsibility to its citizens in time of crisis. That idea really did not exist pre-Tambora, and didn't it give rise the fallout of Tambora? Was that eventually? London got a, a functioning sewage system. Well, another one of these very you know, indirect flow-on consequences, and we haven't even mentioned the word cholera. Yeah, cholera, which yeah. Is, yeah. It was one of the sort of, I'd say, you know, the the most historically significant outcome of of Tambora was it, its effect on the disease ecology of the Bay of Bengal in 1816-1817, which gave rise to a, or produced the conditions for what's called a genetic transfer event, whereby you have a new version, a new variant of cholera. So cholera has been endemic to the Bay of Bengal from time immemorial. A new variant emerges post-Tambora because of the bizarre, uh, the bizarre ecological conditions. You get a new variant. And that becomes global cholera, which kills tens of millions of people in the 19th century. So it's impossible to imagine. I mean, we've been imagining 19th century without Tambora for for generations, but it's never been possible to imagine the 19th century without cholera. Yeah. And so by, you know, by the 1830s, it's reached France and the UK and, and, and the Ireland's. And so, and you have devastating death tolls globally from cholera. Uh, and then what Dave is talking about, which is when, okay, the preoccupation of 19th century government becomes public health, sewage systems, the water system. Mm. Right? Our cities can't survive. Trade can't survive unless we find some way of maintaining basic public hygiene and water quality. Yeah. That becomes the focus of, woof. so many government, the human intellectual financial resources are thrown at that problem to create a public health and water infrastructure. You know, that hits in the 1840s and 1830s, 40s and 50s. Wow. But it's, it's, it's part of what I, I call Tambora's long tail. Yes. I, and I think it would be the true of uh, the a pandemic is a good analogy. Mm. I mean, there'll be historians at the end of this century who will be looking back to COVID's long tail, right? You have the immediate historical consequences, which we're participating in. Uh, but then what, what will... You know, happening in in 2040, 2050, 2060, will we will we be able to tie back yeah. to 2020? I think there'll be plenty. Yeah, of absolutely. There you will. know, the world the world has been changed by it, uh, and uh, it, think of COVID as a massive biological perturbation of the world system. Mm. Now, think of it that way, and think of Tam, you know, analogous to Tambora, which was a 
or massive sort of geological perturbation uh, that you know, affected humanity in a kind of similar way. You've convinced me. <laughs> uh, listen, Gil and Darcy Wood, I, I can't thank you enough for joining us because uh, this was something I only recently learned about. And I am now, you know, fully convinced of the impact it had on everything in the 19th century, which, of course, again, long tail. We're going super long now, but impacts everything today. I mean, it, it's it, it is a phenomenal geological event that has had a massive impact on everything that we know today. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, it's been fun uh, talking with you guys. Right. Well, I would recommend everybody get their hands on Tambora, The Eruption That Changed the World. That is the book that Gillan Darcy Wood has written. And uh, I had already ordered it before I even uh, even spoke to you, Gillan, but uh, I'm very <laughs> glad I did now. It's arriving in the next couple of days. I can't wait to read it. Thank you. Okay, so there we go. Uh, Gillen Darcy Wood educated us profoundly on Tambora and the effects it had on everything. Neil, how do you feel now that you've had the experts explain it all to you? Well, you're definitely irrelevant. Uh, <laughs> yes, I think we've. I'm just going to whisper that to you. Do you know about the East Roman emperors? Apparently, apparently used to have a slave saying, "Remember, you were only a man." That'll be me with you. Every time I meet you, it'll just be you're irrelevant. Um, he was brilliant. He was really good. Seriously. Um, and I hate to say this because you sourced the program. Uh, this is the essence of why would you tell me that? Because it's something that hopefully our listeners will find interesting, but also that it should be known and wasn't known. And the fact that you pointed out that Mary Shelley's Frankenstein came from this seismic event would suggest to me that given that the pandemic has given us enough time to create this podcast, we're certainly, I mean, I think we're on a similar track. I think in years to come, people will look back at this collection of nonsense and go, I mean, that was the pinnacle of human achievement. If we hadn't had the global pandemic, we would never have had the Why Would You Tell Me That podcast, which plainly is the greatest work of art that humanity, forget Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, forget Polidori's Vampire, forget yeah. Byron. No, it was Neil and Dave doing Why Would You Tell Me That was when humanity peaked. In years to come, people will say, you know, if you get enough monkeys and enough typewriters in a the room, they will make <laughs> Why Would You Tell Me That. It won't be they would write out William Shakespeare. <laughs> I had never heard of this. I thought that was a really well-made point. I'd never heard of this. And I feel enriched, I have to say. Well, then I will consider my work in this episode of Why Would You Tell Me That done. I do recommend that you honestly do further research on Mount Tambora because we didn't cover everything we wanted to cover in that. There just isn't time uh, in the uh, self-imposed time constraints of uh, this podcast. I don't know why we're self-imposed the time, but we have. But there's so much more to the story. It is utterly fascinating. And even the Irish experience that obviously would, you know, would mean more to Neil and myself. Like, as he mentioned, this was the the the, the, the forgotten famine. I mean, 100,000 Irish people died in the famine. 800,000 people were displaced, but obviously is overshadowed by the famine of the 1840s, but um, it has a massive effect, this eruption of Mount Tambora. On every, and I, I'm sure if you're French and you look into the effect of Mount Tambora on your country in the early 1800s, and, and same for any nationality, it will be seismic, to use that word again, the effect that this eruption had on, on, on wherever you are in the world. So definitely worth pursuing a bit more and reading a bit more about it. I would suggest, and I don't want to do the book down, but I mean, I would just listen to this and then forget that, there's a possible extinction event, a volcano out there, and go about your daily lives. I mean, you could do that either. Uh, and that's what I would be doing. <laughs> that is an option. As fascinating as this was, <laughs> I never want to think about our imminent doom ever again. <laughs> and that's where we're different. This podcast is definitely going to bring up uh, imminent doom, I think, on a number of episodes throughout the seasons, however many we do of this. You're, you're drunk with power. That's what this is. You're drunk with power. I gave you a frog that <laughs> that reproduced in a kind of disgusting but kind of interesting way. And you gave me, if this happens, everything on earth perishes. But still, buy that merchandise and don't, don't forget to sign up with some Patreon. <laughs> hey, look, you're, you might as well spend your money on us because God knows it's going to be useless when we all die from a giant volcano. You know what I mean? <laughs> 
Yeah, where, where we're living in perpetual darkness and I have to sell my kidney to get some rice or some opium. <laughs> I know which one I'd pick. Well, I can't wait to hear what you've got for us next week, Mr. Neil Delamere. Well, I have an expert to talk to us about the Mosuo people of China. Who? Well, they live in a matrilineal society. Don't know what that word is. Society <laughs> is where people live together. Oh, okay, that word, uh, yeah. Okay, uh, matrilineal means the power and the inheritance rights are all through the mammy's line and not the daddy's traditional line and how that affects the people and how it affects everything from their society, their practices, their marriages, they practice something called walking marriages and even their health is affected by this. So we're going to talk next week to Professor Siobhan Matheson. Amazing. I cannot wait to investigate that. Uh, as always, you can give us a follow on Instagram. We're at Why Would You Tell Me That? Neil is at Neil Delamere Comedy. I am at Dave Today FM. And wherever you listen to this podcast, we would really appreciate it if you would subscribe or follow or whatever that word is. It means you'll never miss a trick. And we'll be doing loads of episodes and you'll be the first ones to know all about them. Uh, Neil, before we go, are you doing gigs anywhere? Is there anywhere people can go and see you? I've put the Edinburgh Fringe Festival um, tickets on sale. So just doing 12 days. I'm not doing the full thing there. And I'm doing on Green On, one of my favourite counties in the world, in Donegal in July. So have a look at those. NeilDelamere.com forward slash gigs, the place to go. All right. Thank you, as always, for listening. This is Why Would You Tell Me That with him, Neil Delamere, and me, Dave Moore. See you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 